you will, go ahead and be turning to Romans chapter 9. What would a local church like Poplar Springs Baptist look like if we were pursuing the master's mission with our whole hearts? What fruit would come out of a church that was all in on the master's mission? I've been in both the military and law enforcement organizations where people are willing to literally lay down their lives for one another. We talk about things like camaraderie. In the Marine Corps, we called it esprit de corps. It's an enthusiastic devotion to a group that only the members of that group share. And it's usually inspired by some common source of pride or hardship that they go through that bonds them. But we all experience these bonds of fellowship, this camaraderie in different ways. Many of us understand the bonds of being on a sports team, bonds within marriage, um, mothers sharing birth stories, bonding with each other in a way that only they can. You meet somebody uh, from the same town as you, shared experiences, shared places, uh, recognize some of the same people, and you have an instant connection with that person. And maybe it's the first time you've ever talked to him. Maybe you've talked to him a hundred times and didn't even know you had that connection. And suddenly your bond deepens a little bit. But I ask you, is there a people anywhere in the world with a greater bond than we who are bonded together by the blood of Christ, our Savior? There are all sorts of different communities in the world who are bonded together by different experiences, values, goals. However, we claim to be a supernatural community, born again, free from bondage to Satan, to sin, to self. What should that community look like? It should look supernatural, like a community God is working in and through. We have been and are still being transformed from the inside out from one degree of glory to the next, as we behold our Savior, as we behold him on the cross, as we just sang, as we become more like Christ, as we reflect this supernatural community, we become more fruitful and more effective at making and training disciples for the master's mission. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a community of believers who live supernatural lives that bear witness to you. Help us now as we turn to your word that it may not return void. Make your word coupled with the Spirit's power bear fruit in our lives that point people to Christ. Do this for your glorious name's sake. Amen. There it is. 
Romans 12, 9 through 10. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. A community that is focused on Christ and the master's mission will produce selfless love. Let love be genuine. As I was reading through these verses, it's, it's so easy to fly through these. You can fly through them real quick. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And you can go through it and say, and you can just check your box. <laughs> but what does it mean to let love be genuine? Does it matter how we treat each other within, within our community, within our church body? Does how we treat each other affect the master's mission? Jesus says in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. By this, all people. Who are the all people? The people that we are supposed to be reaching with the gospel of Christ. It's our love for each other that identifies who our master is to the world. Or again in John chapter 17, verse 20, and here Jesus is praying to the Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The way we live in community together absolutely affects the master's mission. When they look at us, they need to see the supernatural work of Jesus Christ in our lives. If they're just seeing us, that does not, that doesn't produce anything eternal. So we have to ask ourselves, then, what kind of love is Paul talking about here? Let love be genuine. Is this a uh, sappy, romantic kind of love? That's actually the only kind of love he isn't talking about in this passage. The love here in Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, is that agape, agape in the Greek. And if you've been in church for a while, you've heard this word before, probably, agape. Agape love is the unconditional, undeserved, selfless kind of love associated with God's love for us. The kind of love that seeks the good of others. The kind of love that doesn't grow cold as the years go by. Paul says again in Romans chapter 5 verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love, his agape love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is where he finds us. Weakness, ungodliness, in rebellion. And that's where he shows us his love in spite of all that. Completely undeserved. <clears throat> we also find two more Greek words in this passage that convey the idea of love. We see the Greek word philia, the kind of love that's associated with friendship. And then there's the Greek word storge. A love which ranges from family members to friends to your favorite pet, companions, colleagues, 
And we'll come back to these more a little more in depth later. But for now, that agape is the most foundational of all loves. You can have all the other types of loves, but they're all but without agape love, they're all going to be lacking, deficient. It's the kind of love that gives to people that can't repay you. They can't give back to you. The kind of love that associates with the lowly doesn't show favoritism, partiality. Selfless love, in other words. Paul gives us another passage to look at to deepen our understanding of this love. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, and have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And having been in the military, as I know some of you have, that, that one strikes me particularly uh, sobering. I, th- I can't help but think of service members who spend their lives serving to the very end. That last great measure of devotion, and they give all for their country. And if they did it without love, there's no gain in it. Biblical love has nothing to do with how far our selfish ambitions can carry us. Remember Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father. And he said, some will say to me, but didn't we do many mighty works in your name? In the name of Jesus, we did these things. And what does Jesus say? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are sobering words. So we learn from the master himself that our heart motives really do matter. Love must be genuine, selfless. It starts with loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then it moves outward and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That kind of love is supernatural. It's not something we can produce in ourselves. Continuing in 1 Corinthians 13 in verse 4 now, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The love Paul is describing here is radically different from what the world calls love. The world tells you to watch out for yourself, live your best life now. If something in your life is hard, get rid of it as soon as possible. Paul is saying something very different. Love is long-suffering. It's selfless. When life gets hard, it doesn't give up. It's committed. And we know that Jesus left us an example to follow. The opposite of genuine love that Paul is describing here is it's hypocritical. It's not genuine. It's fake. Let love be genuine. Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
In vain do they worship me. It's vanity. This hypocritical religiosity that the religious leaders in Jesus' Jesus's day practiced, it was, it was empty. It was vain. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. The outside is clean, but the inside is full of dead men's bones. They were lovers of money and, and of men's applause. They used their position for selfish gain. They were supposed to be shepherds of the flock of Israel. But instead, they ended up being wolves. They made a big show out of their giving and out of their prayers. It was all for the praise of man. We've all seen this, right? We could all name, sit here and name a lot of rich and famous people that go around doing a lot of really good things. They give away a lot of money to a lot of good causes. And we know this because we see the headlines. We see them on TV. We see the trumpets they sound before they do this. We see the pat on the back that they give to themselves. And Jesus says that kind of love, you, forget, you, you have your reward. You sought the praise of man and you have your reward. Don't expect anything else. That kind of love is vain. But if we aren't careful, we can do the same exact thing. We can easily end up just like the Pharisees, acting in a loving way towards people at church, just so people will think you're extra godly, extra special. Handing out flattery to the right people just to get you noticed. I've told this story before to some of y'all, but I remember the first time, I'm a pretty reserved person in public especially, but I remember the first time I was worshiping and I just, I let go of all that, just worrying about myself. And I was really into worshiping the Lord. And then for the first time, I wanted to raise my hand, just in the midst of, I'm just not usually that way. And so I did. And then I opened my eyes to see who else was doing it. And I thought to myself, a wretched man that I am. Even in my worship, I was seeking the praise of man. And it happened so quickly. I was sickened by that depravity that I saw coming up in my heart. But thanks be to God, sin doesn't have the last word in this battle. Another common example of hypocritical love is the expression, and we've probably all heard this one, happy wife, happy life. Some of us probably said that before, right? But it's, and it sounds funny. But it's a selfish way to love your wife. <laughs> I'm going to love my wife so for what I can get out of it. If I love her, it'll make, I'll be happy, right? If I just make her happy, it'll make me happy. I get something out of it. It's selfish. And we could go on and on with examples. So, and it's easy to love those who love you. And it's easy to, long, to get along with people that we just naturally click with. We have lots of things in common. There's some people that I could just sit and talk to for hours. And there's some people I stand next to and I, I don't know what to say next. <laughs> we just don't have that much in common, you know. It takes work, it takes effort to love in that way. It takes a supernatural desire to put the effort in to make those kind of connections with people we don't know very well. 
There's going to be people in this church that we struggle to get along with, that we struggle to relate to. But if you only love when it's easy, there's nothing selfless in that. There's nothing supernatural about it. There's nothing God glorifying in that. It's hard to take time to get to know people. But it's selfless. It shows that you care. Remember why we are called to love each other in the first place, right? So that the world may believe. Believe that Jesus really was sent by the Father to save us from our sins, to reconcile us to God, and build a people for himself. By seeing our love for one another, that truth is conveyed to a watching world. When we love each other hypocritically, we bring reproach on Christ's name. When we love supernaturally and selflessly, we magnify the worth of Jesus. And a community that is focused on Christ and the master's mission will produce selfless love and selfless holiness. And if this connection doesn't seem obvious, hang in there, it will. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. If our love is genuine, it will abhor what is evil. Dislike it, detest what is evil, hate it. True love hates what's in direct opposition to God's glory and human flourishing. Our love cannot be genuine unless we are repulsed by things that are offensive to God. Think of Jesus turning over the money changer's temple. Right? He goes into the temple, turns over the table, makes, uh, makes a whip out of cords, and he drives them out. Zeal for his father's house consumed him. The sin, the depravity, and the people being led astray by it, it moved him. When we see a world infected by sin, dishonoring God, robbing him of his glory, how can we not be moved by that? When we see human beings made in the image of God, being ravaged by the effects of sin, how can we claim to truly love people and not hate the things that are harming them? And we have to be careful here. Paul doesn't mean that we are to commit any kind of violence. It's not a call to violence against people who disagree with us. There are all kinds of commands given to Christians and throughout the scriptures concerning how we are to love, honor, and pray for our enemies. It's a sermon for another day. But we should hate, we should hate the suffering that we see. And it should move us to do something. Even if all we can do is pray desperately, then we should do that at least. Especially when that evil finds its way into the body of Christ. We, we should be, we should hate to see sin affecting the people that we love when we see what it does to them, what it does to their families, right? How can we not hate that? I don't think you can love people fully and be careless about the, the harm that you see coming to them. Notice that the Great Commission involves making disciples and teaching them to observe or obey all that Jesus has commanded. 
this selfless holiness is going to drive us to some awkward places as we confront people, as people confront us, and we have to accept that with humility, <laughs> right? Um, because we are all members of one body. And so we want to be careful because you'll hear people say things like, you can't judge me. That's legalism, right? But Jesus said, teach them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded, right? And I don't think any of us would accuse Jesus of legalism. If we start thinking of our obedience as a means of earning uh, our salvation, then that's legalism. If we're contributing anything to our salvation, that's legalism. We have been saved by grace through faith, set free from bondage to sin and death so that we may worship God in spirit and truth, willingly and joyfully submitting to Jesus. We pursue holiness within the body of Christ because it glorifies God and it's good for us. We strive for holiness that can only be credited to God because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. The Bible tells us, be holy because God is holy. It's not legalism to obey Christ. It's loving, it's loving to tell somebody, hey, I see something in you that's got me concerned. That's, we, we know this, right? We've all got our own blind spots. We have a lot of trouble seeing the, the, the weird things in us, but other people can see it, and we can see other people's weirdness. <laughs> and we're very quick to point it out sometimes. We need each other in this body. I mean, imagine, imagine a doctor who looks at your x-rays, your MRIs, your blood results, and is a f just doesn't care enough to tell you about the danger that he sees looming. That's kind of awkward. I don't want to get into that right now. I don't want to ruin their day. I got other things on my mind. That's <laughs> it's absurd. And yet we do, we do it all the time with our spiritual lives. We see people struggling and we, we turn a blind eye to it. A selfless love drives a selfless holiness in our body that is going to force us to have those awkward conversations. And it's not easy. Love genuinely. Love without hypocrisy. Love what God loves and hate what he hates. We are called to love our supernatural community, and therefore it's impossible not to hate what threatens the flock. We can't love each other without striving for holiness amongst ourselves. In a community that loves selflessly and and seeks a selfless holiness will show honor, selfless honor. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. In verse 10a, we see another one of those Greek words for love. Philostorgos. Don't come to me for the pronunciations. I'm doing the best I can. That is phylos and storge put together, two different words for love. 
It's translated love in the ESV. It's be devoted in some of your other translations. Think of the love among family members, parents and children, husbands and wives. And we also see the Greek word Philadelphia. Most of us are probably familiar, have heard that one before. Right? Brotherly love. Right? There's a city named after that, the city of brotherly love. A brotherly love, kindness, warmth, affection. And this idea is really clear. We're not just committed to each other in this in agape love that does undergird everything else. We're not just supposed to be committed to each other, but there's a family sense of love, a brotherhood kind of love. So some of us might be tempted to say, well, I'll love, I can love you, but I won't necessarily like you. And this text doesn't allow for that. (laughs) It doesn't allow us to go that way. We have to show the same love that our Savior showed us. We have to bring our desires in line with God's desires. We are called to love each other with that, with that warm affection. Brothers and sisters, family members who are fond of each other. Jesus wants to see the members of his body living out these supernatural relationships where we're showing selfless honor to one another. And why? Because it shows what we truly believe about the gospel. Do we look around this room and view everyone equally? as heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ? Do we love each other like we believe that? We can't do this on our own. It is, if it sounds impossible, it's because it is. Outdo one another in showing honor. This outdoing, give preference to one another. Lead the way in preferring your brother, your sister, over yourself. And as you outdo each other, as we outdo each other, right, it'll stir up others to do the same thing. Imagine if we had that culture in this church. What is honor? It's bestowing a high value on something or someone, highly esteeming, giving dignity to, respect. And it's hard to, sh- it's hard to honor someone in a selfless way. If you're showing partiality to certain types of people, certain groups of people. That's one thing I've really enjoyed about our small groups. I've gotten a chance to know people that I might not otherwise have. I've gotten a chance to hang out with them, get to know them a little bit. And uh, you know what I found? I really like them. (laughs) As I've gotten to know them, I really do. That's been good. Might not have gotten that opportunity otherwise. We have to be careful we don't become a church that has cliques, shows. God doesn't show partiality, and neither should we. We're called to honor all people, especially within this community, because there's a watching world. Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. In human form with all its frailties. If anybody had an excuse to get out of honoring, serving people, surely it was Jesus. Nothing in us deserved the mercy that he showed us. He came for us anyway. And our master left us an amazing example to follow. Just imagine this. Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And this same Jesus meets with his disciples in the upper room for the Passover feast. Jesus knows he's going to be arrested and crucified. And he knows the man who's betraying him is in the room with him. What does he do? What would you do? What I do. He takes off his outer garments and begins serving them. Even Judas, his betrayer, the very image of God, is washing their nasty, dirty feet. Takes this the place of a servant. You want to know what it means to outdo one another in showing honor? There's your example. Jesus outdid all of them in showing honor. It's incredible. No one else volunteered to do this. It, was, it would have been customary. But they were waiting for a servant to do it. And Jesus empties himself and becomes a servant. What does he tell his disciples? John chapter 13, verse 12. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And that would have been enough of an example, but he doesn't stop there. Later on that night, he goes on to be arrested and then on to be crucified for our sins. Once again, showing us honor far beyond what we deserve. What we deserved was God's wrath. Instead, we got the righteousness of Christ. How can we withhold showing honor to those whom Christ died for? How can we do it? By now, we should all be very clear that this master's mission we're on is impossible for us. It's beyond our abilities to produce the selfless love, the selfless holiness, 
and the selfless honoring that is going to make any difference in our church members' eternal lives, let alone the outside world. But the mission is not impossible for the master. He has mandated the mission, and he has given all power and authority for the empowerment of the mission. So where do we start? Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's where the supernatural empowerment starts. If we want our minds to be renewed, we're going to have to get God's word into us. We have to soak in the words of God and let the Holy Spirit do his work in us. Listen to Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Poured out on us richly. Romans 5.5 says something similar. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Did you catch that? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's going to take supernatural love to produce the selflessness we've been talking about. And we see that that comes through the Holy Spirit. So how do we partner with the Holy Spirit for the renewing of our minds? Do we just sit around and wait for it to happen? It's by feeding on God's word, meditating on it, living off of it. Paul calls God's word the sword of the spirit. And I don't know about you, but I need the spirit to have a sharp sword in my life. If you want to live supernaturally, then you've got to get serious about pouring God's word into your life. Don't just check the box. It would have been really easy to do that with these verses. Go down the list. Okay, 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 cool. It would have been so easy to do that. I've done my daily reading. I'm on to the next thing. And then expect your life to change. The Holy Spirit came to bear witness about Christ. That's his mission. That's what he wants to do. When we approach our Bibles and our prayer times with that same goal in mind, then I think we should fully expect to see the Spirit acting in our lives, acting in our community in supernatural ways. And when we do that, we'll be supernaturally empowered for selfless love, selfless holiness, and showing selfless honor not for our sake, but for the sake of the master's mission, for his glorious name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth and the authority of your word in our lives. I pray, Father, that you would give us a supernatural desire to see your kingdom lived out here on earth, starting with Poplar Springs and moving out into the community. Help us to continue to keep our eyes on you as we seek to follow your example. Help us to love as you loved, to be holy as you are holy, and to outdo one another in showing honor. All for your glory. Amen.